Hello and welcome to Book Lovers Companion. My name is Edith and right next to me is my lovely co-host, The Chattering Teacup. Hello. And dear listeners, we have a lovely guest from the Southern Hemisphere again. No, not Australia. No, 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 not this time. We have a guest from New Zealand. And it's not only a different time zone, but it's also a different date zone. We're talking to the future, dear listeners. <laughs> and hello and welcome to our guest, Michael Bodo. Hello, Michael. Good morning. Hello. Guten Tag. Guten Morgen und guten Abend von uns hier. Good evening from us here. So, Michael, you are a fiction author, but not only that. You have degrees in creative writing and journalism. You write columns, you write blogs, you write advertising and communications for corporations. And you have a... Or you started an online gallery for New Zealand short story writers as well. Mm. Writing is your day job. And it's my night job. Ah. <laughs> okay. So we are here because you have poo, quite a lot of books already, already under your belt. You have written, correct me if I'm wrong, please, a number of short stories. You have also published them in 2015, Speed Shine. Yeah. 2017 Hot Bible and your novel Moneyland, book one in a series, I suppose? Um, yeah, so uh, Moneyland, I've just sold it to a different publisher. Ah. It was self-published. Um, so now it's with Next Chapter Publishing, which is cool. Um, so I'm two books into the Ooh. series of three with, with the Moneyland trilogy, ah. which we have rebranded as the Lockdown Land trilogy. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And this... This one, sorry, uh, this one is a dystopian novel set in 2037. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. yeah. mm -hmm. Okay, then you have more short stories or collection of short, short stories. Low Life, True, Mean, and in 2020, your novel Crime Church was published. It's about yep. violence and how to survive this kind of violence. Yeah, um, so specifically about young males violence and the codes that young males have for sustaining violence and why young males stir up fights that they don't need to stir up. Mm -hmm. Yeah, We'll dive into that a little bit later. Then came again short stories, Hell of a Thing and a collection of poems, Loudmouth and another book, My Animal Family. Did I cover everything? Did I forget anything? Did I miss anything? No, you didn't miss anything. Uh, it's just a hot Bible that, that dates back to about 2012. So basically from 2012 to 2020, so it's been about one book per year, roughly. Hmm. Okay, so dear Teacup, shall we dive right into Grime Church? Yeah, because you always pronounced it incorrectly. You, she always said Christ Church. I said, no, 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 that's where he's come it's from. My, <coughs> it's my mistake. It is set <laughs> in Christ Church. But, yes. Um, I wanted to ask, um, you write about, uh, let's say, not so nice parts of life, the, the more seedy and greedy part, greedy part. Why is that? Why is that so, something you're so interested in? Because uh, it's, it's the gift that keeps on giving. It's something I can get really passionate about. Because in my own life, I've made plenty of mistakes. I've gotten in trouble with the law. I've become involved in feuds and disputes and beefs that I didn't need to be in. 
And also, uh, when I was growing up, uh, there was plenty of violence, either in my personal life or maybe a little bit in my personal life, but just on the periphery. I was always well well aware of who the bad kids were at school, and I was really interested in what was happening to them. I was really interested in how much trouble they were getting themselves in. Some of them I'm still in touch with. One or two people that did. Yeah. So I I, I, I had a reasonably safe place to grow up, and I think it's fair to say I always had my parents' money to fall back on. Like if I if I did stupid actions, you know. And I lost all my money and ran out of money, which happened a lot of the time in my twenties. Um, so I've been really privileged. So I think there's no point in imagining a, about upper class people and more privileged people that I don't know about so better. What I can do is I can look down at people with less advantage. I can look down at the people who have made more mistakes. Instead of wondering about what I don't know, I can write about what I do know. So yeah, I, I certainly know about first world fuck ups as I put it, which is like, we have a lot to fall back on. We have a lot to keep us secure and alive. So why do we sabotage ourselves? Why do we start fights? Why do we cause violence and crime? So yeah, it's, it's mm. a fascinating topic to me. Mm. Mm. And would you say that we have, or we here in Europe, or we in Austria, since I said before we started the recording, we don't know a lot about New Zealand, that we have a, a, a do idyllic view of New Zealand? No, look, uh, all, all the tourism and, and marketing and promotion, that's true, but like all the all the bad aspects of a capitalist society are mixed in there too. And the more you know about human history, and especially pioneer history, I, I think most people in the country know more about what we call Pākehā history. Pākehā is like another word for the Europeans mm -hmm. that have been in New Zealand since about the year 1800. So the more you know about them, the more you know, you, you come to understand that they were no saints and a lot of the first people that populated the country were young men like the whalers and sealers and right from the get-go they were causing problems. A young, ma young man born in New Zealand in say the year 1820, I think it's fair to say has just as much chance of getting in trouble as a young man born in 2020. Mm -hmm. It's in your genes. It comes out of your blood. Young men like to fight. Young men like to take risks. And there's a certain proportion of people that will take really extreme risks hmm. and cause lots of trouble. And mm -hmm. Yeah, so that goes back as far mm -hmm. as human history. It goes back forever in, in Europe. And um, it doesn't change just because a European person has been brought to the other side of the world. <laughs> it's still in your blood. It's still yeah. in your genes. Yeah, that's true. And you said it's a little bit also about male rituals. Is it, would you say, um, especially a male thing? I mean, don't get me wrong. I mean, women can be, let's say, mean in a different kind of way. We also have our ways. But there Do, are also some wild, violent ones. There are also violent uh, women, definitely. But would you say violence is definitely more something um, connected to young males? Generally. But the reason I can write about males is because I am a male mm -hmm. and I'm surrounded by males and I know them better. Mm -hmm. And so I have more authority to speak on that, whereas I don't know the other 50% of the world or 51% <laughs> of the world. Yeah, so I don't know what it's like mm -hmm. to not be a male, to be mm -hmm. a woman. I don't, like, I don't know what it's like to be other genders. So, um, yeah, I, I should 
that's probably remiss of me. I should probably study that more. I should probably find out. I've, I've made a new writing friend, so I should ask her about that, actually. Hmm. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's it, actually good. That is a really good topic, isn't it? The, the yep. codes of female violence, because yep. we have prisons full of women. There are prisons just mm-hmm. for women, aren't there? They get yep. in trouble. Yeah, definitely. Absolutely. I mean, sometimes I feel women are more sneaky. They can be more brutal sometimes. Especially when you look at female crime writers. Sometimes I get the impression that we we enjoy being, I don't know, brutal. Yeah, but there's a, there's a difference between writing about something or doing it. Yeah, true. That's true. That's true. But you shouldn't underestimate us, I suppose. I don't know. So... Michael, tell us a little bit about the characters in your book, Crime Church, for our listeners. How would you describe them? What kind of people are they? What kind of persons are they? And what made them the way they are? Oh, the, um, so there are seven protagonists. Uh, the book is divided into roughly roughly seven sections, or like seven batches of nine chapters mm-hmm. and then, then there's an epilogue and, and a climax where they all mix so the first character that gets introduced to us in Prime Church um, is, is Marty and he's uh, he, he comes from a pretty good home but he chooses to to waste his opportunity and he chooses to get in trouble and he thinks the rest of the capitalist middle class world is very hypocritical so he chooses to use that to justify the burglaries that he does and the drugs that he takes and yeah um and being angry at the world and then the next next character who has one of the seven main chapters uh is jade slattery who his mum was in a cult his mum was in a mental institution hmm. and so he's growing up really damaged he's like a he's like a ferret or a weasel he's just absolutely savage and he's he's a he's a pure psychopath hmm. and he has very little empathy for other people He's out there causing extreme trouble. Then we have another few characters who are causing slightly less trouble. There's a guy called Chong Sam, who is um, half Samoan and half Tongan, and he's more. His temperament is a bit more even. Uh, he loves fighting and he loves being a big thug and uh, trying to rule the crime world and trying to get into the world of the older uh, biker gang members. Mm-hmm. Because all, all these characters start out young. And then we have a couple of women that are caught up in all the trouble that these people are causing. Uh, one is the drug-dependent girlfriend of Marty. Mm-hmm. And, uh, she's she, she's quite aimless, so she's easily led by all these other characters. And then we have the mum of Chong Asam, the, the Samoa Tong guy. And the mum, uh, she works for correction. She, she works in the justice system, mm-hmm. but she finds herself covering up son the trouble that her son was mm-hmm. causing and so these people um they're all involved in uh, various layers various milieu of of the cry the christchurch underworld because the, the book christchurch it's about how it's got a beautiful glossy veneer but it's it's quite a big city and in every big city in the world you have an underworld of people that mm-hmm. um take shortcuts in life basically mm-hmm. and cause problems for other people and, and are less considerate of other people so yeah, the book is very much exploring how the beautiful garden city, its, its gardens and its museums and its art galleries and its classical music. Yeah, it's, it's looking at how there's this other world going on of um, a couple of thousand people mm-hmm. fighting and competing. Yeah, yeah. because uh, I suppose when you look underneath underneath the surface of all this beauty, 
when you look a little bit deeper, you will find things like that, like you described, in every place, I suppose, don't you? And um, yeah, and it's uh, and I think a couple of the main causes would be what's innate in us. So most people take shortcuts at some point in their life, and sometimes those shortcuts cost other people. You know, one mm-hmm. of the easiest shortcuts is just stealing your food or your money from mm-hmm. another person. Because it's slightly easier than working for it, mm-hmm. that that causes all sorts of problems. Um, and sorry, the other um, main driver of these problems, I would assume, is capitalism. Where even though we've got way more than people had ten years ago, or twenty years ago, or a hundred years ago, you know, anyone born today is so much more privileged than anyone born a hundred years ago. We have so much more that we can get so many more tools, mm-hmm. resources, medicines, yeah. shelter. But still, it's never enough. We're always wanting mm-hmm. to grab bigger toys, more elaborate toys. We're always wanting to eat better food. Mm-hmm. And so I th- think that inspires our shortcuts, doesn't it? It, it mm-hmm. inspires people to want to find lazy ways to make money, or lazy ways to get sex, or lazy ways to bring things into their house to advantage mm-hmm. themselves. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and this is, I think uh, some people uh, at least make it seem very easy to get rich. And uh, maybe on the other side, people who don't have the opportunities to get rich try other ways, as you said, shortcuts, and they might be criminal. Do you think that people are more likely to believe something like dark or bad in a book? Is it easier to make them believe that or more really nice things? Um, I think the dark, bad, or the or the really nice have an equal chance of success or failure if the author is using lots of subtle tools. Got to be really subtle with the tools, and those tools begin with the cover and the branding and the name of the thing, and then the reputation of the author helps persuade the reader how much they should believe in what's in, you know in, in the story. Mm-hmm. The blurb on the back helps persuade the reader. And then every single line, every single sentence, um, if you drop one sentence, like if you, if you have one sentence that is weak or is lazy or inconsistent, or if you if you drop your tone, if you lose your tone, yeah, you, that can ruin the page. Mm-hmm. And a couple of ruined pages can ruin a chapter. And then I think it's fair to say most readers wouldn't continue to the end of your book. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, so you have to be really subtle and you have to care about every word. There are, what, 85,000 or 95,000 words in a novel, so you have to care about mm. 90,000 little dialects. Yeah. <laughs> and is that much more difficult if you write a short story because you have less words? Oh, um, yeah. Now, the, um, the word count restriction on short stories has, has a massive effect. It's like, um, it's like creating a dam. You know, you create the dam wall and all the water, all the words have to back up straight. Mm-hmm. Because, like, the dam is the word limit, and the word limit is saying you cannot go past this point. So all the water that wants to flow, it has to be stopped. So, yeah, um, and there are many interesting – in fact, it's astonishing the differences between short stories and novels. Um, uh, I'm about to publish my seventh collection of short stories, which is the horror collection, which is going to be published in the United States. And, um, yeah, those stories got a lot of work in them. Um, Edith and Teacup, do you both know this word compression? Do you know what I mean about compression? Mm-hmm. It's like um, mm-hmm. when, when you're sending somebody a zip file, you know, when you compress mm-hmm. uh, data into a zip mm-hmm. file, mm-hmm. 
So you're doing that with short stories. So you're practicing so much compression where you're squeezing a big world into a story that's maybe not going to be more than 5,000 words, mm-hmm. maybe not more than 6,000. Yeah. 6, so, yeah, big, big challenge. When you compare, when you compare writing short stories to writing novels, then would you say then that when you write a novel, you are more tempted to put to put in uh, filler chapters? Yeah, yeah, especially on your first draft, you can you can put in some filler, but then you have to come back and you have to you have to know that the filler cannot last. Mm. Yeah, because because um, if if a reader were to be re- enjoying a novel and then they come across a chapter that's clearly filler that's going to lose the reader. Mm. And what would you say is the appeal for a writer and especially for a reader to write or read and, or both, in this case, short stories? I mean, you always said short stories mm, left you wanting more. Is it is it the, the goal of the writer to make the reader want more? Um, that's, that's one goal. Um, yeah, I remember some of my... I think when I studied writing, we were taught that. One of the advantages of short stories is, so it's all, right, this is going to sound like the complete opposite of leaving the reader more more. I would probably aim more towards satisfying the reader. So by satisfying, I mean giving them a complete full meal. And for me, I used to read a lot of short stories on trains in Auckland. Mm -hmm. And the train ride would last 30, 40, 60 minutes. And it was really nice if the whole short story could Mm -hmm. be complete within that time. And I've got really nice memories of reading Tobias Wolfe or T.C. Boyle mm-hmm. or Colin Barrett, um, who's an Irish, a young Irish story writer. I've got really nice memories of completing these stories on, on the train and, yeah, fe- feeling that sense of completeness. So, yeah, short stories that fit in with our busy lives fit into uh, mm-hmm. our lunch break mm-hmm. or fit, or, you can, or if you can get a whole short story read before you go to sleep at night. Mm-hmm. That's a good thing. Mm-hmm. Sorry, yeah, I mean, as I said, you usually don't read short stories, but um, because we're talking to you, I read some of yours, and I don't know, maybe but I read them and maybe I thought more about them than I usually would. Ooh. I think because I don't know, I sat down and read it from from start to beginning, and mm. it was like a scene out of mm. something, but there was a beginning and the end, but mm-hmm. it was finished, okay. so there was nothing lacking mm-hmm. in this regard. So. Yeah, it was, I don't know, maybe because of the shortness, um, it was more imp- impressive. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Okay. The art of compression. Yeah. You, you, you have to learn how to compress really well, eh? Um, I hope it's not getting too much off track, but when, I'll, I'll draw a quick diagram. When, <laughs> when you start out, so a short story should be, should be, like a successful short story should be one, two, mm-hmm. three. Mm-hmm. I hope that's not It's not reverse mirror images. No, no. So like three sections, three mm-hmm. acts. Oh. Mm-hmm. So that's the, so I'm ticking that. Mm-hmm. That's the correct way to do it. Mm-hmm. But when you're starting out, often your first drafts are like this. Often your first drafts are like this, where mm-hmm. your first act is uh-huh. so long that you've used up your entire word count just uh-huh. just clearing your throat, okay. just setting the scene, just starting it. And yeah. by the time you've, you've hit your word limit, you're only just on the second one. So yeah, it's um it's such a hard battle to to evenly balance the three acts of a story, mm-hmm. and, it, and it takes a lot of drafting. And the only solution with that is you would have to fully extend right out to the third mm-hmm. draft, and then very give these a really even haircut. 
often talk about giving giving them a haircut or getting the hedge clippers <laughs> and clipping the hedge. Okay. You know, really portionally mm-hmm. back. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you have to be really strict, really ruthless. Mm-hmm. And does it happen or can it happen then that you decide, no, it's not going to be a short story, it's going to be more? Oh, that's how Crime Church started. Crime Church started out as a as a short story that I was trying to stop at about 7,000 or 8,000 hmm. words. And then it spilled over into about 10,000. Hmm. And it, it was just the story of Marty. So Marty mm-hmm. is just one of the characters in Crime Church. But in his story, he, he had mentioned other characters from Crime Church. And my wife, who I was married to, we're divorced now, uh, Sarah, she was pretty good about reading my stories. And all through our marriage together, she would almost never give me any feedback. She would just say, it's good, Mikey. <laughs> and I would always say to her, I can't work with it's good. It's good is not helpful. I can't grow from there. Um, but I gave her this short story version of Crime Church, which is almost becoming a novella. And instead of, when she read that, instead of saying it's good, she said it gave mm-hmm. me post-traumatic mm-hmm. stress disorder. Mm-hmm. I was like, whoa, great. So <laughs> I've got an emotional reaction. Mm-hmm. So this is clearly a strong piece of writing. And I felt so passionate about it because my life is so safe now. I don't get into much trouble anymore. Not zero trouble, a little bit of trouble. <laughs> <laughs> I, I barely get into trouble and I never want to lose the memories of how much trouble I, I could have gotten because mm-hmm. mm-hmm. I, I risked my life a lot of times. I got into a lot of fights. I smashed things. I got into lots of disputes with other guys, and and I never want to lose the passion. I never want to forget the passion and the mm-hmm. excitement of it. So um yeah um I had that ten thousand story ten thousand word story, and I added that to another ten thousand word story and another one. I just kept going a block at a time, pulled these seven blocks together, and, and then we had Crime Church. Mm. Sounds so easy. Yeah, it sounds easy indeed. <laughs> and the characters in Crime Church. I mean, you said you started out with just this one character, Marty. Is he based on someone you knew? A little bit on you, perhaps? Yeah, well, he is. Okay. And what about the other characters? Would you say that they have a role model in real life? Yeah. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. The psychopath character... I would say he is about 90% based on the real-life person who, who I went to high school with. I went to all my schools with the real-life person. Yeah, so so the psychopath is Jade. Jade, I've, I've called his character. He's most closely resembling real-life. Mm-hmm. And it's not exactly who it is. It's my view of him. It's just mm-hmm. my personal mm-hmm. take on who he is. Yeah. Then there's um, the thug, Chong Ah-Sam, who he's got a reasonably good heart. Um, but he just loves standing over other people. Uh, he's physically really big, and he just loves dominating other people. And I would say he's about 60 to 70% on a real guy who I also went to school with, um, who I have beers with occasionally. I'm still <laughs> friends with him on Facebook. <laughs> <laughs> he, he goes to prison sometimes, so um, I can't always have beers with him. Uh, okay. <laughs> Unless I go to prison with him. I've never been to jail. <laughs> and then the character of Marty, he's sort of like 30% based on me. Um, he's from an immigrant family. Mm-hmm. He's from a, a safe, intelligent family, but he still chooses to get in trouble. And he's got a little brother who questions him. 
and the brothers go their separate ways. They, they start hating each other and they take different paths and they both get into their own kind of trouble until towards the end of the book. They have to come back and rescue each other and they have to rebuild the family. And that's, that's not really what's happened in my real life. My little brother has never gotten in trouble. Full stop. <laughs> he's just watched me get in trouble. Ah. And he's, yeah. yeah. So you are the black sheep. Yes, but my sister has gotten in a little bit of trouble too. So oh. maybe I can blame her. My older sister. It's all her fault. You just followed her. <laughs> no, followed, just her. followed her. Uh, followed in her footsteps. Um, two, two, two black sheep and one sheep follows the other black ah. sheep. <laughs> Some reviews said that um, they really liked the book. It was very violent, but it sounded true, very realistic. Um, did you have any? Uh, did you get any problems because of uh, because there's so much violence in there? It probably would have turned a few people off, but no one has said to me that they stopped reading because of the violence. But people don't always tell you the truth. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. In fact, few people do. Um, probably only book reviewers would tell you the full, their full, complete truth. Yeah, how they personally received it. Yeah, um, probably you and I, Edith and Teacup, we've we've probably all read books where maybe sometimes we don't like we'll 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 hit a couple of pages where there are similar things going on for one, two, three pages and if you can see that all the same thing is happening, you can skip ahead a little bit. So mm -hmm. I'm sure plenty of people skip ahead at some of the violent parts. Yeah. Which is fine. Yeah. They've got a right to do that. And oh. I do that. Yeah, I think I've done it also. Yeah, maybe. But it was sure. sometimes I, I put a book away because I didn't like it too much, and a few mm. years later I started again and really enjoyed it. So, could be different. Yeah, true. I also wanted to ask you about a money land before we uh, move on to my animal family. Uh, you said mm. book two is coming out in very yeah. soon. So what what's happened is. Um, I trialed it on Wattpad, both my Wattpad, and um, the first book I, I self-published uh, and I, I printed paper copies in, in New Zealand. Now, the first iteration had a bad cover, and that didn't help. So I learned lessons about the cover. I also learned about crowdfunding. That was really important. So this is back in 2017 and 2018, a crowdfunded Moneyland. And that book was a success. It didn't get many reviews because sometimes it was hard to send books in for reviews because the cover was so bad. But uh, people really liked it on Wattpad and, yeah, its, it's audience really liked it. So then around 2019, I wrote the second one. And now I've been looking for a really great publisher and finally connected with X Chapter Publishing. They're like a, they're a Western publisher, but the CEO is based in Japan. So they're very digital, they're very young, um, and they, they specialize in the e-pubs, I think. Um, so it's been completely rebranded. Uh, it is now the Lockdown Land Trilogy because the books are all about being locked down, having a big glass dome placed over a small community and uh, fighting fighting the artificial intelligence robots that have placed you in there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so that's cool. Um, so now we have uh, Money Land, Lockdown Land Book 1. The second one is called Payback. That's Lockdown Land Book 2. And the third book is coming in about one year. Mm -hmm. And will they also uh, republish the first one then? Yeah, 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 yeah mm -hmm. absolutely. Yeah. Mm -hmm. In fact, it should be available in about two months. Mm -hmm. Okay, it's good. Yeah, it's good to know. It's good to know. Okay, 
we published write it down oh god the list is growing again what was or what gave you the idea for this kind of of novel i mean it's dystopian like i said in the beginning you already mentioned an artificial intelligence was there an event or something that started the whole thing the whole uh, story or and why inspired use by two things mm-hmm. and why use young adults for it oh also good question because because that's a busy section of the reading world i mean um you and i um we probably all read a lot when we were teenagers mm. not 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 every teenager reads a lot unfortunately there are many teen- teenagers who barely read but on the other hand we can all think of examples of teenagers who are still passionate about reading so those are the people that i want to reach and you can what's a nice way of saying that teenagers are more believing they're, they're less skeptical about the world so mm. i think it's fair to say teenagers would have a higher chance of believing in ai and dystopia mm-hmm. and robots mm. science fiction horror yeah okay so um that's that's why i'm writing for the young people so two things inspired Moneyland. Um, so Moneyland is about 12 teens who are given $12 million to stay in a biodome for a year. It gets placed over a suburban neighbourhood, like maybe Vienna, but I'm, I'm really thinking like detached house subdivisions mm-hmm. that you would have in Canada or America or New Zealand, mm-hmm. Australia. Um, so not, not apartment buildings, detached houses. So with Moneyland, uh, one, I wanted to write about why so few of us grow food in our backyard anymore. A mm-hmm. hundred years ago, I'm sure our ancestors did. I'm sure yeah. they all kept chickens or had a butcher within their building or yeah. had farms nearer to them. These days, all our food is trucked in, isn't it? It's, yeah. it's refrigerated. Yeah. If you live in a city, you are very far from the, from the source of your food. Yeah. And I think young people coming up don't know where their food comes from. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's yeah. true. Just to, gem- just to generalize a lot. So I wanted to explore that. I wanted to force these teenage characters to learn the hard way that there are things to eat in suburbs, but they have to completely adjust their expectations. My characters end up eating guinea pigs and goldfish and fruit trees and um, drinking out of ponds, and uh, they have to break into the old uh, BP petrol station, you Mm -hmm. know, the the gas station. Chocolate bars become worth $100,000 because (laughs) they've got... Yeah, they've got nothing else to spend their money on. They're excited about a million bucks, and then they realize there's, there's nothing to spend it on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Um, and that's why they start fighting each other. One guy pays the others to come and work for him and to become his bodyguards, and then he establishes a little fascist dictatorship. Oh, yeah. Okay. Ooh. So there's that. Um, so that's one of the inspirations Moneyland, and and secondly, I'd read this really good book called Our Final Invention by James Barrett, which talks about how far along artificial intelligence already is, mm-hmm. and it talks about the concept of the singularity. The singularity is this concept whereby artificial intelligence will soon reach the point where it becomes self-aware, mm-hmm. and then it, it will it, it'll be intelligent enough to grab the resources that it needs to empower itself and just keep growing and growing and it will become unstoppable. So the singularity might occur in the 2030s. Is that the concept Stephen Hawking warned about before he died, do you think? Probably. Mm. Because he's scary. Yeah, it's a scary thought. 
and also makes me think about what we had in the sci-fi movie Terminator. Terminator yeah, sorry, Terminator, yeah. because the machines saw how flawed we were and we had to to be exterminated. I mean, thinking there's about a very it. famous Terminator with an Austrian accent. Yes, <laughs> yes, yes, he is. Yes, yes. Uh, oh. Arnie. <laughs> Arnold. Arnold, Arnold, yeah. yes. Uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger, yeah. So coming to your, um, because you mentioned it in, in your email, my animal family. Is it yeah. out yet? Not yet. Oh? It's been out for a few months. Yeah. Oh, for a few months. So okay. I, can, I, I can send over a digital copy. Mm -hmm. Oh, would, would be highly appreciated. <laughs> Thank you. And what can you tell our listeners about this book, this new one? It's a fairly new one. It's completely different from Lockdown Lands, and it's completely different from Prime Church, and it's completely different from my short stories. Oh. So I, th I think it's really bad marketing practice to mix <laughs> all these things together. <laughs> But I'm doing it anyway, because yep. I'm just passionate to talk about all of my books. Yes, please. So um, I have two beautiful children, and they've been raised in a house where their mother is an artist and their dad is a literary artist. So they've always been surrounded by books and animals and intelligent conversation. We will talk about basically anything at the dinner table. Nothing is off limits. So when my daughter was about five, um, my daughter's very intelligent and she loves to argue. And I remember in the car one day, we were talk um, I, I just me mentioned in passing for some reason that human beings are animals. She said, no, they're not. Humans aren't animals. <laughs> well, yes, they are, honey. No, they're not. Well, honey, we've... we've We've, we've got a genus name and a species name. It's Homo sapiens, um, just like every other life form. Look, that seagull that we just drove past, that's distantly related to us. It's remotely related to us. It, it shares a tiny little bit of DNA. And on the animal kingdom, like on, on the structure of life, that animal has just as right to be in control of the earth as, as we do. And now um, my daughter saying that, it reminded me when I was a kid, when I was her age, having my mind blown, you know, being blown away by the concept that humans are animals. And, yeah, um, that uh, I found that surprising at first. It doesn't take long to understand it. I think it's good to be refreshed on that concept mm -hmm. several mm -hmm. times during your life or maybe even on a daily basis mm -hmm. because we will probably treat the environment better if we bear in mind that yeah. other species have equal rights to us. Um, so anyway, in, in my animal family, it stars my two children, Abe and Violet, and they swing through these branches of the tree of life, and it's a rhyming book, mm -hmm. and they talk about genus, they talk mm -hmm. about species, they talk about backbones, they talk about mm -hmm. cells and DNA. Mm. There's a lot fit in there, and it is very challenging. Mm. In fact, it's so challenging that some of the publishers were turned off, and, mm. and they didn't quite get it or understand it. They couldn't pronounce the rhymes, but I didn't think it was funny. But lots of other people have really liked it. Uh -huh. And would you say that, I mean, you said uh, in your family there was, you talked about, or in your family you talk about everything, their children, you talk about anything. And would you say that isn't done anymore too often in families, that you take the chance to sit down for dinner and answer the questions children have, like you said, uh, uh Humans are animals. Yes, they are. No, they are not. And so on. Not just that, about anything at all. Yeah, I think the, um, 
I think there are plenty of families. You, you could, one word in English, you could say they, they are prudish, mm. uh, as in like they, they deliberately limit what they talk about or think mm-hmm. about mm-hmm. Um, just because of cultural reasons. Mm-hmm. In fact, many, oh God, we, we could talk and talk and talk about cultural reasons for not talking mm-hmm. about science at the yeah. table. But in my culture, how I was brought up, science is paramount. Science mm-hmm. is extremely important. Mm-hmm. So I want to teach my children to go into the world and be able to separate truth from fiction. Yeah. In fact, it's one of the great wrongs of human civilization where, where we blur religion and science, isn't it? Mm-hmm. You know, um, I, I'm a little bit religious, but I never let religion supersede science or, you know, mm-hmm. suppress scientific ideas. Yeah. I don't want my children to think that God created dinosaurs because <laughs> it didn't happen that way. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. And... Did you encounter people that thought oh. the subject is too difficult for children? Yep. Yeah. New Zealand's children's publishing, there are very few children's publishers. I think there's only like three, maybe, uh, well-established companies just in New Zealand that publish children's books. So a lot of children's book authors are investing $10,000 of their own money to set up their own publishing houses. Mm-hmm. Which is great. You you produce a really nice book, but unfortunately, you've got to spend the whole year marketing it to get your money back, to get your investment back. I think that probably suits older people better, like more retired people. Mm-hmm. And wouldn't you agree that you can't start soon enough to teach children science, like you just said? I mean, we saw it now think- with the pandemic. I mean, when, what we saw in Austria, it was... To say the least, it was scary. The opinions people held or the thoughts they held and uh, what they said during some of the, the yeah, demonstrations. And, and also in, in school, I mean, we have at least uh, from, from first grade until you leave school two, two, two hours a week with religious teaching. But uh, uh, science classes get cut. I mean... Oh. <sighs> I mean, that's, isn't that the wrong way? Yeah. yeah. There are many things in the world that we value that are less important than science. Sometimes we value fast food more than science. Yeah. We value Netflix more than science. Yeah. 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 Or um, countries, look at how much money countries waste on having wars that they can <laughs> pour into science instead. Yeah. yeah. Um, hey, on, on that topic, um, you're, Edith, you're, you're completely right to say, yeah, you can never start teaching science too early. There is a series of books. Um, I think the author is American. He's called mm. Chris Ferry. He literally has a book called Quantum Physics for Babies. Mm. He's got Rocket Science for Babies. It teaches kids about Higgs boson particles mm. and quantum mechanics. Uh, yeah, <laughs> which is cool. That, so that's setting kids up for a life, a, a more intelligent life. Yeah, absolutely. Maybe science is considered as very difficult. Mm. And but often you, if you try to break it down and explain it in a simple way, children can understand it. You just have to try to explain it and take the children seriously. Yeah, when they have mm-hmm. questions, and that don't just say, "Yeah, yeah, you're too young, you don't understand it. Wait until you're older." No, you shouldn't do that, should you? Oh uh, yeah, I've I've never said that to my kids yeah. about anything. I don't, I don't think there are. Yeah, all I would say to the kids is that. In life, there are a couple of unpleasant truths about how people treat each other sometimes, but that's probably the only thing that I would keep from them. Or when, yeah, 
keep from how cruel human beings can be to each other sometimes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And then they have something like what is it called? Uh, Noah's Ark in the in the United States, built I think by an Australian. Ken Ham, isn't he the guy who set up this whole thing, supported with money from the government and so on? I mean, that's I think that's also a, a scary thought. Come to think of it, <laughs> to be to be quite honest, it's mind-boggling sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and, and, and on that, and on that subject, uh, one of the things that I constantly have to explain to the kids is uh, the concept of zero BC. You know, it's, it's only zero BC because the Roman emperors converted to Christianity, and then the, the clock, the calendar, was reset. Mm-hmm, yeah. So um, sometimes we have to dwell on that, and yeah. that's quite a complicated thing to explain. Yeah, indeed. Yeah, yeah true. <laughs> Hard to, to grab that concept, indeed. And Michael, on your experience as a writer and as a published writer and also as a self-published writer, what are your experiences in the good way and in the not-so-good way? Or what have they been so far? What would you like to share on this account with our listeners or aspiring authors? Um, I'll tell you the best things that have happened to me and then the worst things that have happened to me and then some advice things yeah, on just some so I can stay up on track I'm just writing this down <laughs> probably the best thing that's happened to me that's felt undeserved or it's felt like a bigger laurel has been placed on my head than I deserve would be okay so there's one newspaper editor in, in a small New Zealand city and he just a stranger who I didn't know stumbled upon my work on the internet and then I sent her a book, and she recommended the book to this newspaper editor. And the newspaper editor just fell in love with my work. His name is Paul Brooks, and he runs a, a newspaper in a city called Whanganui. And he's so generous, because as an author, it can be quite hard mm-hmm, to mm-hmm. get newspapers to write about your work. Mm-hmm. Sometimes you have to ask a lot. Sometimes you have to pay. And this guy will just give me so much attention, and it's all praise. And um, yeah, he really boosts my confidence, and he brings lots of attention to my work. And he's so supportive, and he he asks for nothing back. He asks for nothing in return. He's just a super fan, which is awesome. Mm-hmm. So that's one of the best things that's happened. And it happened just, and that happened because I had a good enough book to give to a middle person. And she was impressed enough that she gave it to someone else. Mm-hmm. So. So there's some advice for writers there is like always take risks. Never forget to send a book to somebody when you promise to send it. Mm-hmm. Um, and sometimes that's going to cost you money, like give away lots of free stuff because sometimes that can give you a big re- reward. That can give you like free advertising in the newspaper for yeah. life. Yeah. That's mm-hmm. what it's got me for, for, for the price of a $30 yeah. book. Yeah. And worst things that have happened, um, I had one reviewer who – I had a short story collection called True, and one reviewer really praised it. Like She really got inside the stories, and she understood mm-hmm. exactly what I was going for. So she wrote a really glowing review in New Zealand's most respected magazine called The Listener, and I had a couple of people stop me on the street and tell me, oh, that was a great review. I'm going to buy your book. So that's a really good result. And then I had the complete opposite probably that same month or the next month. A reviewer for a small literary magazine decided that she hated my book and hated the stories 
and she decided to put a really negative slant on all the stories and she decided to interpret the stories as offensive and cruel and cynical and yeah so she wrote a long piece and published it on the internet and yeah plenty of people would have read that and it was like it was a deliberately cruel review Hmm. and um so i wonder you know have i offended her in the past without (laughs) but that's that's gonna happen like um or have I offended her in the past deliberately and then completely forgotten mm. about it? Maybe. <laughs> but, I mean, she, she has a right to her opinion. She has a right to put that out there. And that's always going to happen when you put your books out for review. So, like, for beginning authors, when you first publish your stuff, whether, whether you've got a publishing company behind you or whether it's publishing yourself, you have to accept not everyone is going to like your book. And all you can do is put 110% effort into it, try and get it as good as you can. So that should minimize the chances of people hating your work. Yeah. Hmm. And enjoy the good reviews. Yes, indeed. Yeah. And, but, and yeah, and don't think the good reviews stand for everything. It's just yeah, a good yeah. review. It's nothing more. Yeah. It doesn't actually make you a better yeah. writer. It doesn't make you a better writer. Yeah. All it does is encourage you to keep going. Hmm. Yeah. Is it even harder in New Zealand to get published because it's a small country. Yeah. 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 We're, we're a highly literate country, so we've got a big culture of um, – there's a certain percentage of the population that's really – we publish a lot. Mm-hmm. A lot gets published here. We have a lot of writers, uh, but very few publishing houses. Mm-hmm. The economy is very small. There's no money in it. There's no money in literary fiction specifically. Mm-hmm. That's the worst genre. That's going to bring you the least amount of money. <laughs> so you're only going to <laughs> you're only going to make money from here, really, if you're writing genre romance, horror, yeah, thrillers, huh. crime, crime yeah. fiction. Yeah, the, the usual. No, no, true. Crime and romance. Crime and romance. Why does combine? For, for, for example, Paul Cleave who is New Zealand's most successful crime writer, he only got big because in Germany, um, he got a big publishing deal where a big numbers of his first book sold. It was a book about about crime church, really. It was about a serial killer in Christchurch. Not successful in New Zealand, huge over in Germany. So mm-hmm. if you can export your mm-hmm. writing yeah. in a genre, you'll do well. That's true. I mean, compared to New Zealand, I mean, population-wise, it's it's the truth. I mean, Germany, 80 million. New Zealand, what, five and a little bit million. I think what you just said about your your community of authors or or the number of authors you have in New Zealand, it, it reminds me a little bit of Iceland. I don't know why. Oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Even smaller population, and they are also very prolific, mm. especially yeah. the crime writers. I mean, this also begs the question, what about the crime rates in New Zealand? I mean, Iceland has a population of about 300,000, and uh, I think all the crime writers combined have killed the whole population of Iceland by now, I suppose. Well, it seems that way uh, when you look at it. So what about what about New Zealand? What about the crime rates? And, and they don't even have a crime rate to speak of in, in Iceland. That's why they write about it. Yeah, that's why they write about it. 
crime writing is really burgeoning in New Zealand. About 10 years ago, around 2010-2011, a few people got together and formed the Nio Marsh Awards for Best New Zealand Crime Writing. Mm. And now what setting an award did was it made people rise to the occasion. It made people mm -hmm. produce great books to try and get that award, which is really cool. Um, so as I say, Paul Cleave, uh, he can sell overseas. And there's a couple of other examples of Oh, no, sorry, there's probably about 10 examples of New Zealand crime writers that are selling really well overseas. Liam McIlvaney, Vanda Simon, JP Formare, etc. And, yeah, and I, I find some of these authors to be writing really unrealistic stuff. <laughs> New Zealand does, does, does not have serial killers. We don't have serial killers. It does not happen. Um, yeah, so... Yeah, I don't know what to say about that. There's some <laughs> unrealistic stuff. But it's it's selling. So if sales are your goal as the mm. author, then mm. you'll do okay. Mm. Um, but like if being acclaimed as a serious author is your goal, mm -hmm. then you're not going to achieve that. Writing about serial killers mm. in a mm -hmm. country that doesn't have serial killers. Yeah. yeah. But you also said literary fiction is not that, I'd say, a big... A big a part uh, of the, the the whole scene. What would you wish for then to make it? Or do you wish, or have it? Do you have the wish that it might be a bigger part in the in the whole writing community, publishing community? I think people are going to, always going to authors are always going to produce serious literature, whether or not they get paid for it or whether it costs them money. And I guess, yeah, maybe we could release more government subsidies to pay for authors to take the time off to write this stuff. But I think if, if, a, if a really meaningful book really wants to come out of an author, then it will come out and they will find a way. I don't think there's any evidence that we're losing great books. Literary fiction still gets published every year, but there's no money in it. Like the, mm. There's only one or two publishers that publish literary mm -hmm. fiction and They will never admit that there's no money in it, but there's no money in it. <laughs> it doesn't make anyone money. I think it's not dissimilar to other countries. Mm. Often these books are bought not because people want to read, because just because they have good reviews. Mm. And they think they have to have it. Might be. And if, uh, everyone buys it, but no one reads it. Not no one, yeah. but yeah. not yeah. the majority. Yeah. True, true. One cool thing, though, is if you are smart enough as a writer to train yourself to understand the screenwriting industry, you mm. can move into the screenwriting world and that can be your new place. Yeah, so that your stories really come alive on the screen. And one of the most successful New Zealand authors who wrote The Luminaries, Eleanor Cahan, who's won the Booker Prize, she has become a screenwriter, which is awesome. Which is really good. Did you not also dip your... Your toes yeah. into this boat? I'm, I'm getting into it, and I you will be the first to know when I sell a screenplay and, and get on the screen. Ah. And then so you, I'm still you getting to, into it. Yeah, to, then you have to come on the show again. Sweet. Sounds good. Yeah. <laughs> yes, definitely. <laughs> and, Michael, is there anything else you would like our listeners to know about your current projects, your future projects, or even your past projects you would like to share with us? I would say I didn't start extending myself and challenging myself till I was about 27 or 28. By the time I hit 30, I was really extending myself constantly. Mm -hmm. So if you aspire to be an author, 
you know, if you really like other writers, please extend yourself, always challenge yourself. Never hand in any work that was easy to write. Mm -hmm. If something's hard to write, then it's probably going to be good. Um, so extending yourself means growing. Mm -hmm. Arnold Schwarzenegger, he grew, he extended himself, right? Yes, he did, absolutely. Yeah. He constantly challenged himself and, she, and he yeah. always tried new things. He never stopped. Yeah. Would it also yep. extend to, yourself. yeah, would you also say that uh, extends to different genres? I mean, challenging yourself to give a, another genre a try, even if you feel yeah. as if, ah, oh, oh, I don't, I can't, I won't, I'm, I'm not brave enough. You should, authors should definitely try other genres, but they should try and make smart decisions. And the more important question is, um, Am I going to create a, a meaningful work that I can be proud of instead of am I going to create a work mm -hmm. that sells this month? Mm -hmm. uh, do you remember how sick list was really popular for a while? Sick lit meaning sick literature, meaning novels about teenagers who meet when they're both sick or they're both unwell and then they fall in love. Yeah. They fall in love in hospital. Yeah. The Fault in Our Stars, books like that, 50 Feet Apart, is that what one was called? So, I mean, that it's blown over, like, Don't derail your whole career to go and write a genre that mm -hmm. might not last. Mm. So, you know, like people might not be buying Harry Potter style books or um, Hunger Games style books anymore. So, um, yeah, just just aim aim to write something that you can be proud of. Because at the end of the day, it's, it's your family who you have to answer to. It's the people that love you, not strangers out there on mm. the internet. So if you can come home and, and know that you've written something that'll make your family proud instead of making some stranger on Goodreads yeah. proud, that's more important. Yeah. 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 And there's a lot of stories to try out uh, on your webpage. And then people can, can buy the book because they love the stories so much. Absolutely. Oh, it, felt, it felt so good. It was so empowering to set up NZShortStories.com. I only got it going in 2017. And it, it cost time. Mm. It cost money. And I had imposter syndrome where I doubted or I thought, oh, no one's, I don't know if people are going to really want to read this, but it's such a good tool. It really, so instead of being embarrassed about my work or shy about talking mm. about it, I'm, I'm proudly putting it out there mm -hmm. and I'm saying to the world, I'm definitely an author. This is non-negotiable. Yep. I don't care if you don't like it. This is good work and it's here. And 1%, if one, just 1% of the world thinks this is good work, great. That's 80 million people. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely, you are right. I mean, be brave then. Be brave and put it out. Yeah, yeah exactly. Tick up. That's all there is. No. Any more questions for our guest? No. Anything else you would like to share, Michael? No, I'm good. I want a coffee now. Yeah. <laughs> 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 then you shall have, your, uh, shall have your coffee. So, Michael, thank you so much for joining us for this episode. It was a great pleasure talking to you. And like I said, you're always welcome on our show, especially if the toe dipping becomes more than just the toe dipping. Let us know and we will talk about it. And dear listeners, you have a lot to read on his webpage, online gallery for New Zealand short story writers. And there are also his books. And there's a lot to looking forward to, I think, with the trilogy that will be republished and book free with Lockdown Land. So look out for Michael Potter, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me on. Thank you for being Thank here. You. It was a pleasure. Sure. 
Have a, what is it, a Friday? Have a great, yes. fr have a, have a great Friday. <laughs> nice and, day. Okay, and a coffee. Okay, thank you. Thank you, bye. bye. Thank you, bye. Cheers, guys, bye. We hope you enjoyed this conversation as much as we did and we'll meet again at Book Lovers Companion. If you liked this ad-free episode, you might consider buying us a coffee or even become a member and listen to new episodes earlier than everybody else. You can do either at buymeacoffee.com slash booklover.com. You can find the link in the description.